Hey there, just wanted to let you know there could be parts of this episode that are triggering. So I just wanted to inform you before you start listening, it is totally your choice to listen. If it gets too much, please step away and take care of yourself best as you can. And if you're someone who can listen and go back and forth and listen to it in parts, that is totally up to you. I just wanted to make sure I put the disclaimer before you go ahead and listen. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to It Didn't Break Me, a podcast where we have honest and vulnerable conversations around the messy stuff we didn't think we'd come back from, inspiring you to give yourself permission to discover the beauty within the mess and to let go the illusion of perfection. I'm your host, Bianca Keisha Hughes. Hello there and welcome to the It Didn't Break Me podcast. I am your host, Bianca Keisha Hughes. Thank you, thank you so much for tuning in and joining me to listen to episode four of season two of the It Didn't Break Me podcast. As always, whenever I've not had an amazing person, because quite frankly, everyone is amazing, including you, I have an amazing guest on the podcast today, and I, as as normal, I'm not going to talk too much. I want to get into the conversation, but just a quick reminder that you can leave a voicemail on the website, itdidn'tbreakme.com. And just leave your experience of something you thought would break you, but it didn't, and how you overcome. It could just be a quick two-minute voicemail. It is on the website to the right-hand side. You will see a sign saying, leave a voicemail. So I would love to hear what you have to say in your story. It can be anonymous, and I will be sharing that on the podcast. So let's just go ahead and get into who the guest is this episode. From homeless high school dropout foster kid to multiple seven-figure net worth, Kimberly Valerie is on a mission to help women overcome their limiting belief so that they too can find wealth, fulfillment, and a life they love. So let's go ahead and get into the conversation. Hello, Kimberly, and welcome to the It Didn't Break Me podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) I'm excited to have you. So let's just get right into it. Okay. What is something you thought would break you, but it didn't? Well, I've had a few of those moments over, you know, I'm not a spring chicken. I've had a few of those moments over the course of my lifetime, but perhaps the one that had the biggest, most um, instrumental impact was being removed from my childhood home at a young age. Um, I was 13 years old. I had suffered an extremely, and this is a bit of a warning to your audience, had suffered uh, an extremely horrific uh, beating by my mother's boyfriend Mm. and um, was knocked unconscious. uh, And as a result of that event, I was removed from the home, but my siblings were not. Mm. And so, yeah, so if you can, so, and, and I was, uh, I didn't have a recollection of the event. So 
a number of days after had woken up in the hospital with no recollection of what had happened. And so really trying to piece together kind of, first of all, what happened? And second mm-hmm. of all, what what was going on with my future? Wow. Yeah. Wow. And your siblings, were your siblings younger than you, the ones that were left in the home? One was younger than me by five years. And mm-hmm. one was my twin. I have a twin brother. And oh. so there's, there's actually a total, there's five of us in my family. Mm-hmm. One had been given away. Mm-hmm. And I say given away, not given up for adoption, because it was kind of like, I, I equate it to like a litter of kittens. You're like, here, I have too many, take one. Wow. And I say this, I'm not being, un, I'm not being insensitive. This is just for people to understand the frame of reference for my mother. Mm-hmm. So she had five of us in five, six years and I'm a twin. And so one child was given up, given away to the neighbor. Another one was a juvenile delinquent. Mm-hmm. And so he was, he was young and younger than me. And then the three of us remained at home. Okay. And then I was removed and then two left were left there. And one were, younger and one the same age. And were you close to them, especially your twin? Because my sister was little, she's eight, five years younger than me. Mm-hmm. And because we grew up in a very unstable, transient uh, home, like very poor supervision, like all that. She was like my little kid. She was like my kid. Okay. Right. Okay. And so I was really attached to her and felt really like her protector And in fact, um, after I had recovered and was in my foster home, it was a couple of weeks later, I actually went to the school, her school and stole her from the school and brought her to my foster home because I was so scared for her. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of system issues that are come up for question. Like, why would the other kids be left there? Yeah. You know, all these kinds of things. I still have no answer to, you know, what, uh, what is this like 43 years later? I have no answers to. Yeah. So I took her and I brought her to my foster home to protect her. And of course, at 13 years old, you're not allowed to raise your Mm -hmm. siblings. And so um, the police had come to get her and take her back to my mom's care. And funny enough, now this is just, I'm just going to fast forward. Funny Mm -hmm. enough, I fast forward to, I think it was in my thirties when I became a social worker Mm -hmm. and I actually went into child protection Mm. where I assessed the safety of children and removed them from Mm -hmm. parents care if their safety was threatened and I did that and I was good I was great at it it was a job that it was like it was meant for me I had great rapport with the parents I had great assessment and safety skills I had great hunches I this just people were were like surprised like oh my gosh how are you because it's a tough job right yeah it wasn't until many years later when I was going through some really deep healing mm-hmm. from childhood mm-hmm. that I was, it was connected subconsciously that I really had been trying to save my sister. Mm. Those 15 years that I was working as a child protection worker was really me recreating that loop over and over and over again of trying to save her, right? It was me trying to wow. fill that loop. And so that's pretty powerful. When it hit me, it was pretty powerful. That makes complete sense. Oh, right? wow. Yes. Yeah, was, and I mean, yes. I was a social worker. I went through all the training for understanding trauma and triggers and all that kind of stuff. And so for me, it just really, it made me see the filter that trauma, mm-hmm. whatever level, however, anything that sticks to you, but it creates a filter for how we actually perceive the world and perceive ourselves 
And that was, you know, I was 50 when I had that big, massive aha moment. And I thought I was pretty ballin' at 50. Like, I knew, <laughs> I knew the things, right? <laughs> it really surprised me the that that was so buried in my unconscious, but also so part of how I saw the world that I couldn't even see it. Mm. And then I thought to myself, if your subconscious is that powerful, can you imagine the decisions, this to myself, I can imagine the different decisions I would have made over the course of my lifetime had I been able to really truly unpack and heal, if you will, for lack of a better term, some of those other things that go on as we get older, mm -hmm. right? Mean girl situations, yeah. you know, school, yeah. like all those things. Yeah. Right? But, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So talking about trauma, and I always like to highlight and just a reminder for you listening is that trauma is not always about this big event or this one time event. It's how a small, it could be the smallest thing. It could be your mom or someone said something to you in a wrong way and you're still stuck there. So really trauma is about where you are stuck. Um, and, it, you know, a big part of it is this emotional um, and mental piece to me is the biggest piece in the actual event itself. So I'm thinking about you, you're waking up after a few days, um, you're in the hospital, you've of course already endured trauma already because you're living in this transient lifestyle, then your mother's boyfriend, then you're waking up in the hospital, you have no idea where you are. So I'm thinking about all these traumas and then you're removed from your siblings and put into a foster home so then you've got all this continual trauma going on like what was some of your thoughts and your your feelings at this time as a 13 year old you know I've often I get that question a lot and I try to kind of like connect back it's really hard to connect back with what I was feeling in the moments because mm. I'm older now and so then I can tend to articulate differently yeah. instead of articulating from a 13 year old I do remember feeling very angry and like tough mm -hmm. because going into uh the group first I had to go into a group home and I didn't know what to I didn't know nothing so I remember feeling tough but mm -hmm. also unsure so that kind of like uh, I'm tough uh, I can't be pushed around um, and I had a situation happen in that first group home where somebody tried to take advantage of me because mm -hmm. kind of a free for all, right? You got a bunch of kids, you know, teenagers that are, you know, acting out and they're, they're just doing the same thing. They're just surviving. They're just in yeah. survival. And um, I had to, at that point, I knew that I had to put on this armor and be strong to protect myself. So I remember those moments and being, um, but interestingly enough, I, I was always a good kid, good kid. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I liked school and all that kind of stuff. And so I was go. I came home from school one day and the entire group home was like, there was a um, rebellion going on. Uh, there was police vans everywhere. There was kids running around. There were breaking down fences. They were like having this riot. They were rebelling. And I didn't know what to do because I came across this, like, and I was, I still remember this. I haven't talked about this for a while, but I was stunned because I am not, I, I am, I'm an orderly person mm -hmm. and I like, I follow laws like respectfully, yeah. you know, yeah, I speed or whatever, but I'm not, uh, I'm not an act like an outward activist or screaming in your face or that. So this whole group of kids is like, they're like, wow, 
but you can't tell us what to do. And they're breaking windows and there's like police chasing kids everywhere there. And I'm standing there and I don't know what to do. I'm just like shocked. And one of the kids comes running by me and is like, yells something at me to like, get, you know, you got to get in this, you got to be with this kind of thing. And I didn't know what to do. So I was <laughs> standing there. Um, I kicked the fence, like a fence board. I kicked uh-huh. this picket fence and broke it. And a police officer was standing beside me. Oh. So, so he put me in the paddy wagon. Oh. And I ended up in detention center for two days. And this is just a side note on that story. So I had never done anything like that, right? Like I've never. Yeah. And so that was scary. And so in the detention center, so I was a little blonde haired, blue eyed kid, but I was raised, uh, we're part native, my family, and I was, we lived on reserve. And so I've always as a kid had a lot of um rejection and opposition because it didn't look like the rest of the kids that I went to school with right because they're on reserve they're darker even my own sister and brothers are darker right I'm very light and so in this detention center they had to put me in solitary for my own safety oh wow (laughs) so it's kind of interesting like that whole time that whole experience like from being beaten up in the hospital to the group home all happened within the course of a month one right? month like that was, yeah that was like it was like and so those experiences it was like I never got into trouble again I can tell you that ever ever <laughs> ever not for anybody <laughs> yeah it wasn't worth it it wasn't worth <laughs> it <laughs> so you're in the group home and then you go to the foster home do you stay in the same foster home or I went um... to I went to a couple of them now remember I'm 13 at this age I'm not a little tiny kid yeah and so I went to, there was two of them that I went to, and then there was a, a foster home. It was kind of like a girl's home where it, back in the day, it was called kind of uh, independent living, but you had a, mm-hmm. a parent, a house parent, and you had to be really good. You had to be really good in school. You had to be going to school, getting good grades, no police involvement, no criminal activity, no gang activity. Like you had all these kind of criteria to meet. And then there was a wait list. And so I was put on that wait list because I was a good, I liked school. I liked to learn. Mm -hmm. I went to school. And so I got put on this wait list. And so I only actually ended up in one, like two actual foster homes. And then that particular foster home where I stayed until like for probably two years I was there until I aged out. Okay. Like I said, I got to be about 18. And so that was really good because that, but that still had a challenges. You got five teenagers living together in a basement. And an adult upstairs. Yeah. Wow. Right? So did you ever, during that time, did you ever get have any therapy or anything like that during that time? Was that, and if so, is that helpful? You know, there was a lot of interventions mm-hmm. with relationship building with my mom and me because, of course, they want me to go back home. Yeah. Right? Trying to get you back home. And so there was a lot of intervention measures. Some was therapy. Some was Mm, it's kind of supportive relationship mm-hmm. management. I wouldn't necessarily call that therapy. Um, but that was a hit and miss because my mom didn't ever want me back. And here's something. Yes. So my mom is now in her seventies and has dementia and I'm her caretaker. And I have asked her a couple of times, like, what was that about? Right. And she, to this day, she says, I knew from the moment I brought him home, that he was going to kill you one day. And I knew that I had to keep you away from him and our home because he would kill you. And so for her, 
she saw that as her act of sacrifice. Right. Whereas on the outside, if we look at it like she was rejecting me, why couldn't she make, you know, better decisions? You know, she couldn't protect like all those things. But in her mind, mm. she saw it as a protection. And to this day, she still says that even with dementia, where she doesn't remember yeah. parts. Uh, oh, she has short term memory loss. She still she will still say the exact same thing. And he 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 did. He was a murderer. He did kill some people like he was a monster. But that and so that reconciliation in terms of living back at home never occurred. Never the occurred. relationship has reconciled. And what about with your siblings? Did you stay in touch with them or? Yeah, we have um, we have we're scattered all over like okay. most families. Right. Um, yeah. I where I live uh, in Canada, I have one sibling that lives close to me. And then the others live in another province where my mom is kind of where we were born and raised. And so we've all stayed in touch and um, have ebbed and flowed in in our relationships um, in terms of closeness and dependency. But now that we're all older, like we're all yeah. in our 50s, I think my my youngest <laughs> sibling turns 50 tomorrow or something. Okay. Um, it's easier for everybody to stay in contact because we're all done raising our babies and, you yeah. know, trail blazing our trails and all that kind of stuff so. <laughs> so did your mom did he stay with your mom that whole time or she stayed yeah, he, with him yeah he stayed with them my sister stayed my brother my older brother left he just went off on his own he's like yeah. i'm out um, but my little sister stayed the whole time and um she's got her own yeah uh PTSD she literally has PTSD from our childhood she has a lot of um uh trauma and messes messy yeah. so messiness you know like because that stuff you don't go on skate and it's interesting because my in my family so this my brothers and even my sister they all had struggles with addictions mm. which seems very which always is very kind of typical with trauma, trauma yeah. like heavy yeah. trauma or transient yeah. or you know that kind of poverty like you know that kind of thing but that never happened for me but here's it, an interesting fact so remember how I was saying that I was good in school yeah so what had happened during these years where I had uh, a social worker is we'd have to go to court and he would have to give a little presentation on who I was and what I was doing and one day he said to me or he said to the judge he's like he's introduces me or whatever and he says she's such a good kid she gets straight a's she loves school her um house parent loves her she gets along well like he's talking about me and i remember being embarrassed and saying like why are you why are you doing that like what is that and he goes look the judge doesn't get to see the positive things they usually are only seeing the kids that are getting into trouble you know yada yada, yada. and i was like oh and then the judge addresses me directly Mm -hmm. and gives me some accolades about the you know how, kind of my achievements if you will and that became my addiction Ooh. becoming addicted to being a high performer yeah that's what I said I was like oh wait that felt good somebody saw me somebody validated me based on my works right and so that became my addiction so I don't know if you know this, but so I specialize in perfectionism, which comes oh. along with that high performance. So it's that. And, you know, I say to people, you know, perfectionism is a response to trauma. 
You know, I would, it's so funny because I, I, I'm not a perfectionist, but I am a high performer and an yeah. overachiever. And over the years, people would say to me, you need to slow down. You need to settle down. You need, and I'd be like, I'd roll my eyes. Like, I don't know what kind of podcast this is, but I would also give them the finger. Like I would yeah. be like, you're rolling my eyes, giving the finger thing. You know, you're just, you're just feeling threatened that you can't, you don't do as much as me or, you know, I, I people would tell me to meditate. I'd be like, I don't understand what's slowing down, how that's going to help me. Right. I had that kind of, the mm -hmm. more I could do. And the, the, the funny thing is society rewards this. This mm. is the other thing. Society yeah. rewards high performance. You yeah. get accolades, you get reputation, you get money, you yeah. get all those things. You get esteem. People want to be like you. You have impact like that. That is a drug. That is, yeah. I call it my drug of choice. I actually have a whole talk on these four to me, my, I call it my drug of choice mm. and that's high performance. Um, because it became like a hit for me. So the more businesses I could own and do well in and resurrect, the more Ironmans I could run, the more um, people I could help, like that just became, including it within my own family. But that, what do you think happens? There's a burnout. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you burn out. You burn out. Yeah, Absolutely. I got cancer. <gasps> I got cancer because I couldn't hear. I couldn't hear that all that trauma, you know, Bianca, you said you listed, right? Like you, you got, you got beat up. You woke up in the hospital. You go to this home, you're rejected. Like all of that created a vibrational state in my nervous system mm -hmm. that I spent. It, it, it was my partner. I couldn't tell that it was dangerous or irregular because mm -hmm. it was so ingrained into how I survived and how I lived. Then when I got cancer and I was like, literally on my dupa on my rear end for uh, you know the better part of two years and having to kind of like reevaluate everything that my nervous system finally came off that high rpm yep yeah and then finally like, at what age was that 50 five years ago <sighs> yeah five years ago i was diagnosed with breast cancer on my left side and you finally relax after that time. So I'm not good at maths. That's like, what, four years almost. Like, yeah, it's been five like years that. since I got diagnosed. It took two years for my nervous system to yeah. come into regulation. And then for me to notice, I was like, wait, this is different. There's mm -hmm. a different energy internally. I know it sounds really woo-woo, but that's what it took for me. Now I understand the point of slowing down. It's not just to slow you down. It's so that you can learn to listen to when your nervous system is dysregulated. Yeah. Because it is so hard to hear that. Yeah. Regardless of what's going on. So that's kind of been my, that's how it all kind of connected for me. It's not, I didn't get cancer because of that, but cancer definitely had a, that's one of those, what, what I thought would kill me and didn't moments was cancer. I literally thought I was going to die. I thought so, that was it. I'm dead. So I one year, two years. Yeah. So you survived. And I have a question before yep. you had cancer and you was high performing and all of these things, did you, and I know you did therapy in childhood, but when you were high performing, did you do any therapy? Did you do anything or you didn't feel like you needed it? Okay. No, I didn't need that. <laughs> I was living life. I'm on, my, I had great friends, my experiences, my children, my bank accounts. So tell her, <laughs> I know it's so obtuse when I look back now, I think, oh my God. No, but, but 
but I know people like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, let me raise a hand and say, hey, is that me too? You know, in that sense. And sometimes people ask me about a situation. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've just been going for so long that I don't even, I don't remember that. I did we do that? Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's how much, you know, in certain parts of my life I've just been going. So I totally relate to that. So now your system has calmed down and just, you know, for you listening, I just want to say this, that when you have trauma, your your body goes into this on, your sympathetic system is on and you, yeah. this is really meant to relax. And so you have been on for almost 40 years. That is a very long time. You get cancer and you overcome cancer and you're lying down and, and your, your body is now cooling down and kind of in a normal state. Yeah, cooling down. So what was that like for you? Because I guess this was your path of healing, would you say? And what did it that? It really was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as much as I was aware and had rationalized and worked out my childhood story, and I know mine is a little, you know, has some kind of gory parts to it. Um, but I had rehearsed and and talked about it and rationalized it all kind of in this spot. I had yeah. done some forgiveness work with my mom. So I had good relationships with my, and so these were to me all indicators of success mm. that I was over or not impacted. So one of the other things that's interesting, I'll just point out uh, a couple of years, well, probably for about 10 years before I had breast cancer, mm-hmm. I had like out of control hot flashes, mm. okay? like hormonal hot flashes. Like they were, they were horrible. They were every 30 to 40 minutes, they would be so hot and I would sweat like a like just sweat and and this disrupted my life it disrupted my sleep like all that that went on for and I tried everything to find a remedy to it now after the last five years of going through a really um, methodical kind of healing process even though I didn't Mm -hmm. want to go through the healing process uh, I just started to explore one thing after another and now my hot flashes are almost gone I get them occasionally Mm. But they are now to me, they, when they start to show up and be a regular and start like just waking me up at night, like I had one earlier this morning, but I had coffee, right? Okay. So there are some things that will trigger it. Or if I get super, really excited and animated, <laughs> right. I'll, I'll get a hot flash. Yeah. That'll happen. Um, but if they just start coming and they're like really super powerful and irregular, then that's my warning system mm. that my nervous system is being triggered again. And I have to like, yeah. even though I might not know what it is, because I feel quite competent and capable to take on any task, right? Yeah. So I don't ever feel, I don't ever recognize feeling stressed out. Yeah. Right. So now it's these little things that, okay, so that's what happens. That means the energy inside of me is, is reactive Yeah. and it's tight and it needs, it needs calming down. Yeah. Even though I'm not, don't feel escalated, if that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Like I, yeah. I think I would, you know, I've noticed that a lot. I think in the last two years or so, I've been paying more attention to my body and listening because it's telling me certain things that I need to pay attention to. And when you quieten down and you get really quiet, you'll be surprised. Like I remember doing meditation one time and realized I had a pain in my back and I needed to go to the chiropractor. Had no, wasn't paying attention to that. Did not really 
realizing like you didn't know your painting no I did not know the pain was in my back crazy right it's crazy (laughs) how disconnected you could be because the body really does tell a story yeah and you know when you talk about the parasympathetic nervous system this is one of the things about be slowing down and turning that off that's how you recover yeah that's how your body recovers from the daily stresses and the what the extraordinary stresses that you put on it and all that and so if you can't do that that parasympathetic system stays on and you burn up you burn up that's literally what happened I burned up and got cancer from this really extreme distorted place right yeah and a few other things but so what who and what were the things that helped you or on your healing path I don't want to say you know because it's a path it's a journey I don't think it's it's a process yeah yeah there's no there's no really ending um (laughs) I think, you know, it's a couple of things. It's it's weird how things get connected. So as a youngster, really my social worker set a lot of good expectations uh, mm-hmm. of what it meant to, he role modeled male behavior. Um, the relationships that I have, my uh, intimate relationships, I've never had a toxic one. I've been mm-hmm. married for 30 years to an absolute awesome husband. Mm-hmm. I think that that con- has con- contributed a lot mm-hmm. um, in terms of creating stability right yes. um yes. and within that stability like i i didn't have i mean as a teenager boyfriends maybe some unhealthy relationship but i didn't really have like extreme toxic intimate partner relationships which i think is really really critical it has been to my growth because he allowed me to just grow and explore and create confidence and all that then after cancer and that whole process what happened is during cuz i got curious about cancer Mm-hmm. I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs doing nothing <laughs> waiting for my body to die I started to get curious about cancer and so I started to research it started to understand cells and cellular mm-hmm. energy mm-hmm. and so I took a course on holistic nutrition mm. while I was going through chemo because I needed something to do I was no longer working I was no longer working in my two businesses I was no longer training for an Ironman I had like basically my day consisted of going for a walk around the block and sleeping and watching Netflix during treatment time, right? During all yeah. that time. So I took a course and on uh, nutrition and there was one of the courses inside of that, our classes was on chemistry and biology, biology, chemistry. Yeah. And it was really the science of cells. And so that got me really curious. So then I went to see an acupuncturist who was a Chinese medicine doctor and, and worked, she had a really good reputation with like working with kind of she's now what I call my healer like Mm -hmm. it sounds really woo-woo-y but it is because it is and it was there that I started to unpack some of the past life events and how those connected to different responses and it's just really been a very not methodical but like as things come up I would just follow that and just explore it and be open to see does that resonate was there truth into that was there any releases for me. And as I've continued to do that, one of the things that I find extremely helpful is um, it's a thing I do is called hypno breath work. Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of it's an active meditation. Okay. Because I don't sit still well. Okay. Right. I don't do traditional meditation well. And this is an active meditation and using your breath to remove energy and build oxygen um, and removing like even unaware, like you said, like, oh, my back was sore and you didn't even notice it, right? Like it's helping moving energy. And over the last year, especially the last year, that has been a game changer. 
Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't do the hypno part, but I do do breath work sometimes mm-hmm. and I go to the classes and that's the other thing I've been big on with the whole body thing and breath work. Oof. It's very powerful. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems very hippie and woo woo. And my husband's always like, mm, I'm not sure no. what you're doing. But, but after I, a while, you start to feel better. Yeah. Like I say to you, and you know, for you listening, go ahead and just take three deep breaths in and just see the switch in your whole it's like a reset, just three breaths. So imagine if you're doing more breaths and, and what that happens. So, yeah. So where are you now? Where are you today? Okay. So interestingly enough, I still struggle with this addiction to high performance Ooh, and overachieving, okay. right? <laughs> okay. I still want to, like, I want to take on and do all the things I okay. want to. I, I'm, we're ser- My husband and I are kind of serial entrepreneurs. So I want to build business. I want to build an empire. I want to run another Ironman. I want, you know, I want to break records. And so what happens is as I, if I lean into that the way I used to, Mm -hmm. my body will send triggers. Yeah. And so I I would say that where I'm at now is really learning the flow Mm. of having balancing that ambitious part of me the the part of me that's really driven because even though that may you know the seeking um seeking approval is the trauma response being driven is not necessarily a trauma it's the mode the motivation behind it right it's the seeking yes. behind it and so the more i can uh, identify what my purpose and intention is the more i can find a flow and yeah. i can honor what my body needs without feeling like without I, I wouldn't have because I was unaware of what was actually motivating me. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, that's where I'm at now today, you know, at 55, I balance those two things because it's still a struggle because who doesn't want to like, I don't know who doesn't want to build an <laughs> empire. Who doesn't want to like, you know, I feel you. Things, I know. And I feel you go on a I... speaking tour and do all the things. <laughs> I totally feel you. I have one question, a curious sure. question. Yep. How did you become an accidental millionaire? Oh, this is a great question. My husband and I, so my husband and I just had this conversation because we started a podcast a couple of years ago about this and he had a very different life than me okay. as a child. Okay. And he came to me the other day and he said, you know what? He goes, I'm not an accidental millionaire. I am an intentional millionaire. Mm-hmm. I just forgot it. He goes, I knew that I was going to take over my dad's business. Like he knew that part. Mm-hmm. He didn't know my part. And I said, well, that's funny. Cause I am an accidental millionaire because I didn't plan anything. Mm-hmm. I bought businesses. I grew, uh, businesses, grew wealth, had a career, excelled in that, made some great business investments and to, all well, he built his business. So we didn't do things together. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Like only now we have a business that we've just launched together. And then we have another one um, in the books coming up, but we did all that separate. Wow. And so, so I am an accidental millionaire in that sense, because yeah. I, I, I never really thought like, I'm going to be a millionaire and then I'm going to set out and do this kind of stuff. Again, it's just doing the things. And I think as you unpack as you unpack your stuff, whatever it is, and you are in an environment that builds and breeds and supports, you know, um, expanding, 
you're able to take out like no one ever taught me how to run a business no one ever taught me how to build teams no one ever taught me like there was no teaching of any of that kind of stuff no passing of the baton in my family like mm-hmm. you know no no one ever taught that but when you when you start gaining confidence you start to believe that you can do it yeah you start to believe that there's answers out there and i think because of my husband who he is he grew up in a family that was all intact very kind of stable in comparison um and they were a family of entrepreneurs so it was he was the only boy it was an assumption he's never had any other job mm-hmm. he's never do you know what I mean he just started as a baby a kid in his family business him and his dad started and they just kept going and so he had this like confidence about him that then was transferred to me yeah right so together that's kind of how it and then we made some really good um investment decisions. Okay. Okay. Real estate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. So is there anything you want to leave with the listener? Uh, This is what I would leave with the listener. If you find yourself, if you find yourself in places where people are saying to you, you need to slow down or you should try meditation or you should try Instead of pushing, rolling your eyes, this is the people that are in denial. This is the old me, right? In denial, instead of rolling your eyes and thinking that it's for other people and not for you, try to be open to what the message is there. Try to be open to what else might that bring to you instead of take from you. Mm, Okay. Right? Yeah. Because had I listened a little bit earlier, I may have been a little more in tune Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying the outcome would have been any different. We all have our paths, but I would have been a little more in tune and have a little different choices. Okay. Well, yeah. thank you. I love that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. I love that. So you are just saying what I'm saying. And sometimes it's good to hear it from someone else. Right. <laughs> yes. like, how do you reach the people that are in denial? Yeah, That's why I call, yeah. it, I call it like an addiction. Cause there's like the denial, the intervention. Yeah. Yeah. Then then there's the healing and then there's the awakening. Yeah. Right. It really, that's how I describe all that. Like okay. the denial was my whole up to 50 and then the intervention was cancer. Yeah. I thought the healing was cancer, but it wasn't. The intervention was cancer. Mm. Right. Cause that was, that's something that stopped me. And it, it was like my little group of people saying, no, you're not going any further. Yeah. And then it was the healing. That and did then, that. Yeah. Did that. Yeah. Okay. So my favorite question, what oh. is my second favorite question? What is something messy in your life currently? Me- okay, well, I'm getting set to move in two weeks and we just found out like four days ago. So my house is extremely messy because <laughs> we're trying to get ready to pack in. We also run like four businesses. So um, it's a little messy. Yeah, that's messy. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. So how can, how can the listener shower you with love? Where can they find Aww, you? That's a beautiful question. You know, on socials, I hang out uh, on Instagram, really at Kimberly.Valerie. Um, that's really where I hang out. So people can contact me there or message me there and then go from there. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kimberly. You have an amazing story and I thank you for sharing it. Thank you, Bianca, for having me on. You're welcome. So that was a very powerful story, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but definitely has me thinking and my wheels turning about a few things. So 
those few things are so my takeaways are that number one our path is not always conventional right sometimes i don't know about you but i can get caught up in the well why isn't it turning out this way this is where i want to go and if it's not doing the exact steps that i want it to that i get kind of frustrated and also worried and concerned but you can still get to where you're meant to be the other thing is that what happens when you are still and you get quiet whether that's your choice or whether you're kind of put in that position but the things you just begin to realize and how you get in touch with yourself and how powerful that can really be and then the last thing is how being a high achiever can or you know being very busy can be something that you put your sense of worth into um when she shared in the beginning Kimberly kind of mentioned that you know hearing that she was getting good grades made her feel good about herself so just a couple of things um that kind of running around in my mind I would love to hear what your things are feel free to tag me on the um social media instagram authentically be you or you can send me an email or if you tag me on LinkedIn, Bianca Keisha Hughes, I would be most appreciative and I will definitely reply back. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Were you inspired by this story? Here are some ways you can shower me and the podcast with your appreciation and support. Follow, rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Share the podcast via text with your people, with your tribe, subscribe to the newsletter where I share my personal stories of discovering the beauty within the mess. And lastly, follow me on Instagram at authenticallybeyou for tips and insights on overcoming perfectionism so you can embrace your imperfections and authentically be you. Thank you so much for listening to the It Didn't Break Me podcast and remember to discover the beauty within the mess.